This is Macro Horizons, Episode 88, Running Out the Clock, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of September 28th. And as a reminder, shows like this are made possible by support and institutional investor votes from our listeners. So please, vote generously. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. In the week just past, the Treasury market had a few fundamental inputs to help refine expectations for the market going forward. However, the fact of the matter was we remained in a very tight range with 10-year yields at 65 to 68 basis points throughout much of the week. Now, this isn't to say that we didn't see some incremental inputs for the macro narrative. In fact, the increase in COVID-19 case counts that we saw in Europe, as well as some of the decisions in London to revive some of the lockdown conditions, have really set up the autumn as a key litmus test for the ability of social distancing and other pandemic protocols to contain the spread of a second wave of the virus. Now, this was always a key risk factor. Certainly, once the market came to terms with the fact that the pandemic was not going to be a several-month event. So as we look to the balance of 2020, it will be important to keep in mind that even beyond the election outcome and some potential positive growth momentum, that the pandemic will continue to provide a bullish underpinning for the treasury market. That said, one of the biggest debates right now is whether or not the Fed is in a position to continue to outdove dovish expectations. Now, we've made the argument that the execution of the Fed's decision to roll out outcome-based forward guidance was met with mixed reviews by the market. Now, obviously, we have seen the pullback in risk assets in the wake of the decision, which further cements this notion that the Fed might be running up against the effective end of the tools that it has immediately at its disposal. Now, the Fed can always transition to yield curve control. The Fed can increase the size of its current QE program. So it's not as though the Fed is completely without options. However, the sense that we get from market participants is that there will be increasing scrutiny put on the Fed's ability to deliver. Now translate that through to the current environment. We're not expecting anything dramatic from the Fed between now and the election. However, if we continue to see equity prices remain under pressure, which contributes to upward momentum in equity vol and subsequently tighter financial conditions, that might be the impetus to get the Fed at least back in the market, starting the conversation about what more it is that they can and will be willing to do in the very near term. 
We've also made the observation in the past that because of the emergency nature of a number of the shifts that the Fed has undertaken this year, that the cadence of rolling out new policy initiatives at the scheduled FOMC meetings themselves had been broken. So we're somewhat less concerned at the disappointment left in the wake of the September FOMC meeting. That implies underlying confidence that the Fed will and has the ability to act if and when needed. The flip side is that Fed officials have been very vocal in advocating for more support from the fiscal side. So in that context, Washington's slow progress toward another fiscal stimulus bill has intuitively weighed on risk assets, and we expect will be a driver over the course of the next several weeks. So guys, the Fed is now behind us. We do have month-end approaching, but we're really sort of entering this period of unknown. What do we think about the market here? Well, Ben, I think that your point about entering a period of heightened uncertainty is key, and it's going to be the primary driver in the treasury market over the next several weeks. Now, we do have month and quarter in, which is on Wednesday, ahead of the non-farm payrolls print on Friday. So we have flows on one side and fundamentals on the other in the very near term. Now, I'm very skeptical that we get anything that truly recasts the outright level of yields or changes the macro narrative. Now, the market is anticipating a below 1 million print for NFP, which is going to reflect this idea that the recovery in the labor market has started to slow somewhat. Now, clearly, as we go into the fall, a lot of attention will be paid to COVID-19 case counts domestically. We've already started to see increases in Europe, and that's one of the two primary risks into the end of the year. The other one is on the political side. Now, there has been a lot of back and forth and chatter about what some of the recent developments mean. My biggest takeaway for the time being is that if anything, we have even more uncertainty than we have in the past. And that's not just related to the passage of a new fiscal deal. And the necessity of something else out of Congress was something we heard repeatedly from Fed speakers this past week. But I think it's fair to characterize the likelihood of another fiscal package as one of the top potentially market-moving unknowns between now and the election. However, I think it's less clear-cut that there will necessarily be an agreement in Washington on the size or scale of the next aid. After all, over these past few weeks, we now have the introduction of what promises to be a contentious Supreme Court nomination process, as well as questions on how exactly the vote counting process will play out and how long it will be after November 3rd until there is clarity on who took the White House, who took the House, and who took the Senate. And on that uncertainty, increasingly, I'm thinking about it as a two-pronged uncertainty. First is simply... How does the vote go? You know, who wins the Senate? Who wins the House? Does the Senate flip? How does the Electoral College shake up? The second uncertainty, which seems to be growing of late, is uncertainty around any potential legal challenges around the vote, delays in the process, or court cases. And just to give a sense of how this uncertainty starts to spread, it interacts with an eight-member Supreme Court in the sense that it could be a four-to-four vote. Now, while I think all indications are still very much that there will be a vote, there will be an outcome, that type of two-pronged uncertainty of not only the vote, but the process thereafter, 
also kind of indicates that we might see volatility or noise in this process, not even just in the one-week period after the vote when everything's being tabulated, but potentially extending later into November or even perhaps December. And in that context, one of the questions that we've received several times is what, if anything, will the Fed be in a position to do if all of this increased uncertainty leads to a repricing lower in risk assets via the traditional feedback loop of higher equity vol, tighter financial conditions. And the Fed has already made it very clear that they are willing to act. But there's an issue of diminished returns, particularly as we've already seen the transition to outcome-based forward guidance and the prospects for yield curve caps are really not that close, are they, John? I don't think so. And part of the reason is if you just look at the term structure of interest rates right now, it's not obvious that we need yield curve caps. Fives are yielding only something like 25 basis points. If you implement a cap at something like 25 basis points, it's a bit redundant. Same with quantitative easing. We have low interest rates and we have negative term premium across the curve in spite of sharply increasing auction sizes. So it makes sense for the Fed to have those policy options on the table But at least by looking at the interest rate complex, it's not obvious that they need to deploy those tools now. Rather, it probably makes sense to keep them in the toolbox so that they have some flexibility later. The question, though, is if that leaves the Fed on hold, at least until, call it December at the earliest, how does that manifest in risk assets? Are risk assets requiring ever-increasing levels of accommodation to justify their valuations? Or will they just be content with $120 billion in QE a month and overnight rates at zero? The flip side of the argument, and one that we've heard several times, is that this Fed has a very clear and distinct pattern of outdoving even the most dovish expectations. And that creates a situation where the Fed's commitment to continuing to pursue a extremely accommodative monetary policy stance will come into question if we don't have additional efforts on the part of Powell and company to outdove the doves, as it were. And that leads back to the implied issue, has the Fed run out of the capacity to truly provide a accommodative impulse to the market if they're really relegated to a more of the same approach. As we've discussed, yield curve caps are essentially a different version of QE. Expanding the balance sheet in a different way is, by definition, more of the same. And there is an argument that at some point, expanding the balance sheet into different asset classes might become a more realistic path for the Fed to take, although we've already seen some of that occur over the the course of the pandemic. And another thing I think that's worth re-emphasizing here is the fact that while the next Fed meeting comes the day after Election Day, which all else equal suggests the next venue for a move would be the December meeting, remember that during the pandemic, Powell sort of threw out the traditional calendar. We had an emergency rate cut on a Sunday back in March, and the FOMC didn't hesitate to roll out new policy measures even if it wasn't a scheduled event. Particularly going into and coming out of the election, with all the unknowns we talked about earlier, If, in fact, we do start to see a really adverse reaction in financial markets, I don't think Powell will necessarily wait until December to act. Now, that still leaves what form the action will take as an unknown, exactly as you were just saying, Ian. 
But in particularly volatile situations, I don't know that we can expect to see this Fed wait until the scheduled meeting. It'll also be important if we are seeing volatility in markets to try to disentangle whether this is volatility for fundamental reasons, aka the market's repricing because of the election outcome, or if this is a very disorderly Markets are impaired, liquidity is impaired, and markets just aren't working. I think the Fed is probably more likely to let the market reprice if they deem the repricing fundamental, but would be much more aggressive in altering some of the liquidity programs or potentially rolling out some more if it's more of the disorderly fashion. So in practical terms, I guess that implies that we would look to the severity of the price action and, John, to your point, if there is an obvious fundamental trigger. Because recall, the price action that we saw in March where there was this massive dash for cash longer in treasury yields sold off, we had this significant steepening of the curve, that had some fundamental support insofar as a repricing based on the pandemic. But it was actually the shape of the curve that really brought into question the true function or the liquidity of treasuries as the risk-free asset. It's difficult to imagine that the Fed would allow another version of the exact same thing to play out. But it's also worth highlighting that some of the significant changes that we have seen from the Fed create a notably different dynamic in the front end of the market as well. This becomes relevant as we approach quarter and year end. And on the topic of year end and funding markets, it's really important to keep in mind that 2020 is extraordinarily different from the past few years. The level of excess reserves are huge. The Fed's committed to multiple liquidity programs to say nothing of quantitative easing, cleaning up dealer balance sheets, or regulatory relief. It really seems like all signs are pointing towards a relatively quiet end, especially when compared to prior years. And I think that we're going to go back to that world where there is sufficient liquidity to see the type of volatility that we saw in 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019. Rather, it'll be something more akin to the early 2010s, which makes sense because that was a time where there were bountiful excess reserves in the system, a huge amount of Fed support, and ongoing QE. The difference, of course, now is the GSIB constraint that does come into play at the end of the year. The research we've done on that suggests that, yes, some firms will need to manage down their balance sheets, but it's a very manageable process, especially in light of how much liquidity and Fed support there is in the system. And that should reduce the chances that we see a flight to quality based on concerns about the health of the banking system overall, which recall was 2019's experience to some extent. So as we think about how the market is going to play out over the course of the balance of 2020, one of the things that I'm concerned about is that we've been leaning somewhat bearishly for the period after the election into the end of the year. And the implication from a lot of what we're discussing here is that an increased period of uncertainty is going to make it much harder to see that drift higher in rates that the seasonals and some of the underlying fundamentals might argue for. One of the key aspects of this that I remain focused on is that we're not anticipating a shift in the overall trend 
for the U.S. rates market, but rather an extension of the upward bound of how far longer in rates can go before we see a significant amount of buying interest come in, stabilize the market, and bring rates lower. One of the other paths toward capping rates that I could envision is what happens if we do get that post-election backup in yields, optimism about the year ahead priced in, and we find ourselves with 10-year yields at, call it, 1%. seems very unlikely that the equity market is going to like that, given how much of the current valuations are based on a lower for persistently longer rate environment. So wobbles in the equity markets then, once again, puts the onus back on the Fed. Ian, I think the potential for a vaccine breakthrough in the fourth quarter should also be added to that list. Now, we've talked about how there doesn't necessarily need to be the beginning of widespread inoculation in order for the risk-positive developments associated with the vaccine to start being priced into the market. And a really good question we got this last week was, how does the accelerated approval timeline that's being pushed in Washington play into the calculus of the likelihood that people are going to be very willing to get the vaccine early on in the days that it's available. To me, questions on the validity of the approval process is just another bullet point on the list of uncertainty, but I do think real optimism on a medically induced end to the pandemic should also play into the calculus for how yields end the year. So what you're effectively saying is that the U.S. rates market really needs a shot in the arm. Have you been looking at 10-year yields for the past three weeks? No, because they don't change. In the week ahead, the Treasury market is once again faced with the all-important non-farm payrolls report. Now, in the run-up to the BLS data, we do get ADP, which is expected to show an increase of 650,000, and NFP itself is forecast at 865,000 jobs, with an unemployment rate slipping to 8.2%. Within the details of the report, expectations are also looking for an increase in the average hourly earnings month-over-month print at 0.2%, which would bring the yearly rate to 4.8%. Recall, however, that there's a compositional issue at play here. At the beginning of the pandemic, many of the 25 million jobs lost were those lower wage earners. And as a result, the average hourly earnings of those remaining in the labor force saw a net increase. It would follow intuitively that as sidelined workers are re-engaged and brought back into the labor force, that we would see some more material downward pressure on wages. The fact that that hasn't significantly weighed on the monthly gains in wages is notable and is an area that warrants continued monitoring. The outright level of U.S. rates is unlikely to change in the very near term. We've been looking for a breakout in the 10 or the 30-year sector of the Treasury market. However, the combination of month and quarter in duration demand, and then on the flip side, setting up for the risk of NFP Friday, we expect will net to yields, retaining the range, realized volatility drifting a little bit lower, which isn't to suggest that there isn't the potential for a breakout, but we expect that that will be an issue for the first or second week in October as presidential campaigning picks up and we get a better sense of the path of the pandemic with case counts in Europe being a focus at this point, 
and presumably that will transition to the U.S. as temperatures begin to fall, indoor dining becomes more prevalent, and the market reassesses where the U.S. currently stands in the fight against COVID-19. We're reminded that the biggest issues between now and the end of the year will be progress toward a vaccine and what that implies for the path of the pandemic, and of course, how the elections play out. Now, when we begin 2020, our expectations were that the elections would be the main event. Obviously, COVID-19 has shifted that stance dramatically. And we'll make the argument that between now and the beginning of 2021, 90% of the direction of rates is going to be a function of what happens with the pandemic, and only on the margin will the results of the election influence the outright level of yields. That being said, there will be a knee-jerk response to the election outcome. If that ends up being risk-off, we would identify that as a buying opportunity. And the flip side, if that ends up being a net positive for risk assets, we would expect to see an upward drift in treasury yields accompany that into the end of the year as optimism for the year ahead is priced in and some of the pockets of inflation that we've already seen take on a new character in that context. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And as the days get shorter and the mercury drops, Macro Horizons will be here. Hopefully. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interest in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable.
Emo assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.